Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, coming to you from pitch dark London, because we're apparently saving daylight now, which means basically it's time to either get my SAD light out or go to bed at 5pm every day. (laughs) So uh, yeah, I'm thrilled about that. Hi, Carrie. How are you? Yes. It's dark. I, it's dark in Oxford too. And uh, yes, I am reminded just how dark it gets after daylight savings. And there was some kind of ruling in the EU, which I guess we're not in anymore, that countries are going to have to permanently go onto either summertime or regular time in a couple of years' time. So it might be changing. That's interesting. I don't know. I'd be even happier if they could just find us a couple of hours of extra daylight to tack on. Regardless, okay. I don't really that care what time it is. Less possible. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, just stretch it somehow. Pray to Helios, make it happen. Yeah, or we could do some kind of thing where we work during the dark and we can be outside all the day during the light. Yeah. Or maybe just don't work through the winter. Maybe winter is just a time for being outside in the sunlight and then just hibernating like the bears. Yes. Well, because. Not to get too much into this, but last Christmas when we couldn't do anything and it was canceled, I just had two weeks off at home not working and it was delightful. Yeah. So maybe, maybe that's it. You know, you just live with the light. Yeah. It makes such a big difference if you can do that and you naturally get hungry at like 6.30, tired by nine, and then you get up at six. Well, it's still dark, isn't it? You get up at seven. (laughs) God, it's so miserable. Just sleep all the time. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to go to sleep until June, all right? Yeah. Okay. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm just grumpy about the weather. (laughs) And we said we weren't going to talk about it so much, but I can't help it. Well, is darkness the weather? I feel like it's connected. Yeah, it is, isn't it? But I feel like it's something at least people in our hemisphere can relate to rather than outside of our like very particular region of the United <laughs> Small Kingdom. Small weather system. <laughs> yeah, it's true. All our Northern Hemisphere friends, you probably feel our pain. And all our Southern Hemisphere friends, congratulations. Enjoy every minute of it. Yeah, please do. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into it, let's get business out of the way. If you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash litfriction. You will also get access to an extra minisode each month and have the chance to suggest themes. That's right. And this month, Patreon minisode will be released in a week's time. And we're going to be talking about our Desert Island books. Very, very exciting. Super exciting. I've been waiting for this moment since I moved to the United Kingdom and discovered (laughs) Desert Island discs. So yeah, get (laughs) ready. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Minisode 26. And thanks for tuning in. The format for these minisodes between full shows is for the next half hour ish, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately with the usual musical interludes chosen by Eddie. That's right. And as the COP26 summit in Glasgow recently ended, we've been thinking a lot about climate crisis and the role that literature can play in galvanising people to take action and in educating people about what's going on. So COP26 has basically already been declared a failure by quite a lot of people, which is extremely disappointing and perhaps not hugely surprising. If, like me, you didn't know what the COP bit stood for, it stands for Conference of Parties and it's a global United Nations summit about climate change and how all the countries in the world can plan to tackle it. Sounds like a great idea. However, 
It seems like the big hitters have been having their day, but the civil society participants have said that they were restricted from access to negotiations and they weren't allowed to have their voices heard, which means there's likely to be a really negative effect on which issues were given any space at all, because the civil society voices are the people who are there to represent hundreds of climate justice, indigenous, women's rights, academic and environmental organisations, rather than national and political organisations. So basically, all that is to say that we want to think about how fiction, poetry, non-fiction writing can approach climate crisis and climate collapse beyond showing just how terrible it will be in the future. So is there a way of these things not just being disaster fiction? And now that we really are leaving behind the world of speculative writing about this, because it is actually happening, like, how are we going to deal with that? So to begin, we've both said in other shows that we really wanted to read more books and novels and writing in general about the climate crisis. And I'm wondering if we have actually managed to do it. So Carrie, have you... Well, in some ways, yes. As an agent, I've actually represented quite a few nonfiction books that are engaging either directly or indirectly with the climate crisis, which is one of the great things about representing nonfiction is I actually end up learning a lot and engaging with ideas all the time. So, you know, those include a book called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World by Henry Mance, which is all about how we treat other animals, but also, you know, about the climate crisis and how these things are so interlinked. Footprints by David Ferrier, which is about what is the world going to look like? How will our ancestors, if they exist, look back on us and see how we lived and basically despair at how we lived? (laughs) And most recently published, which maybe engages the most directly with some of the things you've been talking about, especially in relation to COP, is a book called A Bigger Picture by the climate activist Vanessa Nakate. Vanessa's from Uganda, and her message is that climate change is already happening in the global south, even though the people in her communities are the least responsible for climate change. And it's really about climate justice. So what is climate justice? It includes race, it includes poverty, it includes health, it includes all of these things and thinks about how we have a just world in fighting climate change. And that has been a really transformational book for me to work on, just seeing her perspective and how people like her don't get listened to and and seeing it in action over and over and over. So that's been so essential and amazing for me to to kind of witness. At the same time, I don't want to pretend that I'm a really worthy person who reads a ton of books about climate because honestly, I still think I suffer from that instinct to turn away, the kind of twilight knowing that Jenny Offal called it in her book, which I thought was such a wonderful term for something that I think we all feel, you know, we're aware of something, but we're not really fully Mm. addressing it and addressing what we would need to do as individuals and as a society to take action. Like, for instance, I keep meaning to read the David Wallace-Wells book, The Uninhabitable Earth, and I keep not doing it. So in some ways, yes, in some ways, no, basically. How about you? Yeah, I confess, I really feel the same, especially about that book, The Uninhabitable Earth, which I feel like that book and Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism are the two that I I own, and I can't quite... (laughs) roll my sleeves up and get in them. And and it's because I want to stay in the twilight, I think. I feel stuck there, but also it's comfortable here, like in this place where I can make small adjustments. I'm mostly vegetarian. I'm careful about my energy usage. I don't drive, all these things. That can feel like enough, whereas I know when I crack open the next door, 
it's going to be a tidal wave of things. So yeah, I feel a bit paralyzed by it too. I mean, one book that I've really loved dipping into lately, which I think helps with the paralysis a little bit by coming at things from a different place is Lucy Jones's book, Losing Eden, which is, I think, a really great place to start basically if you're also in the twilight knowing and therefore not quite ready for uninhabitable earth. But if you would like to be reminded of the importance of our connection with the natural world and maybe that will help you turn towards the more hard to face truths about what's actually happening. Her writing is really welcoming and very beautiful and it's quite research heavy, but she has a way of making the science really sing and making it extremely palatable as she digs into the relationship between the natural world and the human psyche. And I think like this idea that nature is good for us, that communing with the natural world can be therapeutic. It's something that we hear a lot. There are lots of really bad think pieces written about it. It's become kind of fashionable in a way that is, I think, ethically questionable. But I also think that it is something that's borne out by experience. Most of us do feel better when we get out in the fresh air and see some green things. And this book really digs into the whys and wherefores of that and argues for the vital importance of the outside world to everyone's well-being and approaches the political element of that as well and who is allowed outside space and who isn't and how can we kind of shape a world that gets it into the experience of more human beings day to day. So while it's not a book that's directly about the climate crisis, it is very, very much about what we'll lose if we don't make serious changes. And I think it's a really great book for people to get at the issue through that door. And also to make you think about what an extra level of punishment it is when we take away access to nature from people. So prisoners or refugees who are kept in terrible asylum-seeking holding patterns, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a really important question to have in our mind when we think about punishment and access. Yeah, it makes me think of that dorm that guy designed where there were no windows. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, it's this like eccentric billionaire who gave a bunch of money to, I want to say it's something like UC San Diego, one of the UC schools to build a a dorm, a big dorm, but it was his own design and most of the rooms don't have windows and one of the main architects quit or something. So I I think that ties in so much to Lucy's book, isn't it? It's like, it is a punishment to be away from nature. Yeah. And to have no windows. I mean, yeah. Oh my God, I would wilt and die. Yeah, you love light. I do. I'm a flower. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the other one, the other book I've been reading, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm reading at the moment and really, really enjoying a novel called Pity the Beast by Robin McLean, which is published by And Other Stories. It's a really different kind of book to Lucy's. It's fiction and it is hugely, like kind of mind-blowingly wide-ranging while also being incredibly tightly held. And it tells the story of a family farm over thousands of years. And it's told in this way that folds these different temporalities together. So you're always kind of inhabiting all three strands. So you have the land as it was millennia ago when it was all grass and rock and roaming wild animals whose subjectivity we actually enter in the book. And then we also have this plot of land a thousand years in the future where it's all underwater because, of course, of the way the climate change is going to render the planet. And then there's also the present moment where this character called Ginny, whose family owned the farm, has just cheated on her husband with this guy who lives next door. And so there's this kind of hotbed of 
discontent, but very human discontent, put in the context of this huge natural story. And I love the way it places the present in the context of its ancient past and also its dystopian future, because it really very elegantly drives home that while we live within the pressure of our own instincts to cheat or fuck and lie and whatever else and love, we also exist in the context of this vast past and future of our planet that stretches so far beyond our comprehension that we become insignificant. And she uses the subjectivity of animals and almost of the land itself to, I think, make a bit of a mockery of the idea of agency that we human beings are so addicted to. And reading it really makes me think about the patch of land I'm sitting on right now (laughs) and like what it will be like in a thousand years and what it was like a thousand years ago, this little plot in North London and it really is leaving me thinking about how my immediate choices might affect the future so I think it's a great example of writing that makes you think about the climate that isn't climate crisis writing yeah in Footprints the book I mentioned before by David Ferrier a lot of it is about this idea of deep time which is exactly what you're describing deep time is this the feeling of time stretching away from us in both directions in ways that are almost incomprehensible on a human scale, and how we can use that to reconceptualize who we are and what we're doing and how we think about the earth. And that's what that book is is all about, really, in the deep, deep, deep future, what will be left of us. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by those ideas. So that sounds great. I think you would really enjoy this book. I really do. And I am desperate to read David's book. So maybe you can bung me a copy. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will. I know he has listened to the show in the past, so he might be listening to this. But it's he's the most beautiful writer, and I'm really obsessed with this book. So um, I will send you a copy. Great. <laughs> that feels kind of grubby. I'm sorry for doing this on air. But anyway, next question is, do you think fiction and poetry have a role to play in raising awareness or changing consciousness, I guess, about the climate crisis. So I suppose really at the heart of this question is the eternal question about the power of literature to change the world, or at least to change hearts and minds. But I think this puts that question in a more specific context. So what do you think? Yeah, it's a question we ask often on the show, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I do think that fiction gives us a more expansive view of the world. And for that reason, there's a way that certain kinds of fiction can make us more aware of and alert to the crisis that's happening on our planet. I mean, that's especially the most true, as you were saying, with like eco-dystopian fiction that imagines a future in which the worst possibilities of the climate crisis play out. I mean, and there are many, many of these books and many more being published every year. The Wall by John Lanchester came out recently, which is kind of, um, it's about a world in which the seas have risen and there's a wall to get in and out of Britain. And it's about somebody manning the wall, keeping out immigrants because everyone's trying to immigrate to Britain where it's still inhabitable. The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler is an older book that does a similar thing, Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood. So those things can creatively present a possible future to us in the most obvious way. I mean, how effective are they at actually making people take action? I don't know. And that seems to be what we need to do now. And there's a certain point where, which is not to say books shouldn't exist, but there's a certain point where I think the kind of utility of books to make huge changes becomes a little bit questionable in these particular circumstances. I don't know. What do you think? No, I think you're right. And I think that's why I'm kind of interested to see small adjustments made in the literary landscape. For example, characters who don't eat meat 
or recycling that just happens as a matter of course in a story that's about love do you know what I mean like I feel like you can't be if you can't see it becomes quite relevant here and I think that what we're learning about the small adjustments we can make within our home lives and our home stories, I suppose, that they can have a big effect if enough people do them. For example, not eating meat every single day makes a huge difference. It just does. And sure, I don't think you're going to convince through literature everybody to be vegetarian. But I think that like, if you think about the role of culture in general, in aspiration, and in showing us a world that we ought to want or things that we ought to want or characters who we want to emulate because we think they're cool. If those kinds of concerns are brought to bear in that arena of fiction, I think that could do a lot. A bit like the way that Sally Rooney brings her Marxism into her human stories. It's never like being hit over the head by a mallet, but she is using her characters to show that there is a way of thinking that might be different to the mainstream. Totally. And in terms of that point about individual responsibility and kind of how literature can model who we are, I listened to that Sarah Shulman interview that she did with Ezra Klein on your recommendation, which I thought was so interesting in terms of in terms of movements and I think applies to the environmental movement as much as it does to ACT UP and, and all of these other things. But also then I started listening to other Ezra Klein podcasts and he made he was talking about being a vegan and individual responsibility and individual choices. And he made a really compelling point about social contagion and how mm. one person can't do it's just what you were saying now. One person Yes, doesn't make a difference, but one person can influence other people to be a vegan by making that choice themselves. And I guess you could think about books in that same way, like books are a means of social contagion. Books are a means of like capturing the culture and showing ways that things can be and sort of disseminating them. 100%. Yeah. And actually, I had really lapsed and started eating a lot more meat during the pandemic and I listened to his podcast and then I saw my my author, Henry Mance, speak about how to love animals. And he's also a vegan. And after those two things happened, I was like, okay, I'm gonna gradually phase into being a vegan. And so I've I've started my started my journey towards veganism, which is is a slightly slow road. But I, I'm going back to like mainly being vegetarian now. I've decided to like model my life in the ways that sorry this is not my announcement I'm making but it just it was interesting (laughs) that those those ideas actually did kind of change my mind yeah I think there's a time when it sinks in I'm mostly vegetarian now and I'm hanging out here I mean vegan eventually seems like the only ethical choice but I don't feel ready to give up cheese I know, that's so really hard. That's the I hardest know. part of it, isn't it? Meat, yeah. fine, but cheese is... I'm also an egg. Cheese is hard. An egg lady. I enjoy an egg. Yeah. I also enjoy an egg. Yeah, but we, we can hold each other accountable, you know? Yeah, yeah. vegan check-in every mini-sode. <laughs> I'm sure our listeners would love that. <laughs> but listen, I also think I have to say that there is merit in a bit of scaremongering through fiction. And I think that human beings have an enormous appetite for frightening stories we always have done and the fact that we are now living in the dystopia that we that our writers of the past imagined in many ways I think it's really important for people to understand and to have those stories brought brought home to them like I was thinking the other day about P.D. James's book The Children of Men which was set in 2021 and it is wild to go back to it from this year and look at the ways in which you know this 
totally dystopian book actually sits a- atop our current situation, like a bit of a weird premonition tracing. So mm. the main premise of that book is that the human beings find ourselves infertile. So the, the major crisis is a crisis of infertility. And obviously, what does that mean for the future of the human race? La, la, la. And what that instigates is, of course, the same thing that the pandemic instigated, which is the mechanisms of power creak into action. Some people are treated better than others. All of the corruptions that we live alongside get thrown into greater kind of relief and power. And refugees are treated like criminals, foreign workers are imported and horribly exploited. So, you know, it's a world that we we really do recognise, actually. And though it's not directly about climate collapse, the instigating point is is there to just show the corrupting force of power and the realities of inequalities that get blown out of any kind of humane proportion. And so the central question is really, is the best or the worst of humanity brought about by terrible circumstances? And I think that that is a question we should be keeping in mind so much when we think about the future of our planet, because we are careening towards increasingly terrible circumstances. And of course, there are going to be moments of beauty and lightness along the way. But like, look at the governments that people keep voting into power. These are not governments that are going to deliver us through terrible circumstances in an equitable way, or a way that it holds compassion at its heart. No fucking way. They're monsters. So I do think that there is space for scaremongering fiction as well, if it can help us hold those philosophical questions at our heart. Yeah. And then I guess the other thing I wanted to say is I keep thinking at the moment about the writing that was done during the world wars. So by soldiers on the front line, by citizens suffering the effects of war, even sort of pieces of nonfiction like um, Anne Frank's diaries and thinking just how important a role those texts played in the understanding of what was happening, whether at the time or from a later perspective, kind of looking back at them as historical documents. But I think that there is this huge importance to reading work by people who are living on the front line of climate collapse, like Vanessa Nakate is kind of talking about, right? Like writing that doesn't just come from people who are living in the global north where we are relatively quote unquote safe and we have an analytical distance from which we can kind of have ideas, but actually things that are being written by people who are living in places that are being really intensely affected. And will the publishing industry make space for more Indigenous voices, for example, will it make space for more work that comes from places that it likes to ignore currently? That's something else I want to see happening more. Totally. Yeah, it's so important. And um, not least because, as Vanessa says, Africa as a continent is responsible for 3% of global emissions. Right. And yet it's, it's the front line. We should be ashamed. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the other thing, the question about that is that just like in Black History Month, suddenly black writers get given loads more speaking kind of events. And then once Black History Month's over, nobody wants to hear from them again. Similarly, like the industry needs to make space for indigenous voices, not just writing directly about climate change, just in general, because it will be a perspective, like we were talking earlier, that that will be folded into whatever is being written about. But the point is, it's not a separate part of life. It's a part of how everybody is living. And I think literature needs to reflect that rather than ghettoizing people in where they can only be a talking head for one particular issue. Because as we know, the world of literature is much the poorer for that kind of approach yeah and not just force people to um 
to narrativize their trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the most kind of depressing elements of things I see I sort of within the literature world that I see at the moment is that it still hasn't stepped outside of that boundary. But next question, is it possible to write about the climate crisis without writing disaster fiction? So having just said there's space for it, what about other modes of writing? Yeah, well, I think we we address this in some ways already in in our discussion of how literature can reflect changing ways of being that would engage with the climate crisis. But I, you know, I don't think it's just that. I think it's partially that literature is a great way of thinking about how humans live in the world and with each other. So it is also a space where we can think through how we engage with the climate crisis. I mean, it's so interesting that we've been talking about Jenny Offal's novel, Weather, in which she talks about, I mean, it's it's really all about climate change and how we as humans confront and live with climate change and, and the idea of the twilight knowing. You know, it's really important for us to see our own inaction and inability ability to come to terms with this reflected back to us in a really thoughtful way. And I think that's what that novel does. Similarly, I didn't love, love, love this novel, but I was thinking of Freedom by Jonathan Franzen, which thinks through some of the dilemmas of being a human in the world with the knowledge that the climate crisis is happening. And he directly confronts this idea, you know, having a child is is one of the worst things you can do in term, if you're interested in having the planet be a safer place. But one of the characters in that novel who is an environmental activist and believes passionately in these issues still has this kind of urge to have a child. And what does that mean? And what do we do in those situations? And novels help us think through these things. I also think you know, novels can be a way in which we explore our relationship with the natural world. The overstory, which is not even really about humans' relationship with the natural world, but is just about trees and the natural world and trees as a form of life that should be loved and respected in themselves. And I think being reminded of that, being reminded that animals and plants are things in and of themselves that should be cared for and protected and in many ways left alone rather than just extensions of humans is a really big part of the attitude that needs to change when it comes to the climate crisis. So yeah, I do think there are ways that literature can engage that are outside of just eco-disaster novels. Who's that by, The Overstory? Richard Powers. Okay, great. Sounds really interesting. Yes, I have not read it. So <laughs> <laughs> Sounds interesting, though. <laughs> I'll just make this admission. And maybe it's related to my Twilight Knowing and David Wallace Wells. I don't really want to read that novel. And I think it's because I'm like less interested in hearing about what trees are doing than what people are doing. But I think that just shows my anthropocentrism or something. What about you? Do you think that you can write about the climate crisis without writing disaster fiction? Definitely. Definitely. I think especially really when you zoom in on human stories. So I'm thinking of John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath, which, you know, is a story about people driven from their homes by drought. So it is about what we have come to call climate refugees in some ways, set in the Oklahoma Dust Bowl. And these families are hungry and they're exhausted and they head to California to try and find a new life. And it is such a powerful novel. I read it as a teenager and it left me weeping uncontrollably on a train. And um, I think it classifies as eco-fiction in a way before the term was on people's minds, but 
it's a novel that is about the external forces that create kind of human culture to to have to become mobile in one way or another and, and it, it takes in class and it takes in identity and lots of other themes that of course are all related to the natural world and the natural environment especially when you're looking at families 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 <laughs> families of farmers is what I was trying to say um farmers. farmerlies yeah farmerlies a new word to the new frontier that's right but yeah I think that you know novels like that like the Grapes of Wrath has never been marketed as an eco novel, but I think that is a category that it could fit in if we're going to categorize things. The human cost of climate change just in the ways that it shows up in our lives. Like I can imagine reading like a really tightly written New York high society novel about a marriage that falls apart because of arguments over the recycling. There's a huge amount to be said about this and to be explored about this and it just requires writers to do it like I'm thinking of Sarah Moss who is a great writer for this kind of thing her books are never issue books in a way but they always take in a lot of things and I'm reminded of something she said in an interview that writing about the natural world is not an optional extra and I love that because it is something that she brings into her fiction and her fiction is extremely grounded in the real world which involves nature so her characters always have bodies and I know that might sound like a strange thing to say but like they have hearts that flutter in their chest or things that go a little bit wrong because that's the reality of being a human being in the body and they relate to the world around them in a physical way not just an intellectual way and I think that's another way of bringing this stuff into the world of literature that exists outside of narrow categorizations. I completely agree. And also on a lighter note, I love the way you say the word wrath. (laughs) I always forget that's how British people say wrath. 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 The grapes of Philip Roth. (laughs) The sour grapes of Philip Roth. There you go. Zing. are back to give you our cultural recommendations. I have to admit, I haven't been having a very culturally rich time lately, Carrie, so mine are a bit thin on the ground. (laughs) Um, So what is your first cultural recommendation? I am going to recommend the movie Dune. Dune? Dune. Dune. (laughs) I will not say Dune. Dune, Um, but you say it so well. Dune. 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 Um, Tell me about Dune. Tell me. Dune. Dune. Oh God, it's, we've said it too much. Now the word has lost its meaning. But anyway, have you seen it yet? No, I'm really, really desperate to. I've just seen the memes. I've just seen the extraordinary memes, which makes me sound like a, like, mum. Really into the memes. (laughs) I'm so interested to hear what you think of it. I did not know anything about the story of Dune, which is, of course, is this kind of seminal, speculative work of fiction from the 60s. But I have really loved some of the films of Denis Villeneuve, including Arrival and Blade Runner 2049. So I was really excited to see this. And it turns out that the story is kind of nuts and very Orientalist. Ooh. It revolves around the 
colonization of a desert planet that contains a lot of what they call spice which is somehow both a hallucinogen and a means of space travel and the kind of white boy messiah who's destined to lead the desert tribes there to freedom and kind of coming into his role as a messiah. Now, I'm told that the series kind of undercuts some of these ideas later on in terms of like colonization and whether he's the messiah or not. Any, But this movie, I was like, hmm, interesting. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but... I have to say, which is maybe what I expected considering this director's, it was really one of the most stunning visual experiences I've had in a while. The film is just incredibly gorgeous. The set design, the kind of whole world, the way it's been designed is incredible. And it really leans into the aesthetics and the stark beauty of the desert. And I love the design of the technology, too. It's a world without computers, so a lot of the ships and the means of fighting are, are kind of lo-fi, and they just look really cool. And again, maybe it's because I haven't really been to the cinema in two years, but I just found the experience very transformative. I just enjoyed myself so, so, so much. It's definitely way too long. It is way too loud, and I would honestly recommend bringing earplugs if you're sensitive to noise like me, which I think you are. I am. That's a really good tip. Yeah. Bring earplugs because it was so loud. Like the Hans Zimmer score is is very relentless, as it often is. But it, I think I, I feel like this movie was mixed even louder than movies usually are. It hurt my ears at certain points. Oy. I was also annoyed by how close in age Timothy Chalamet and Rebecca Ferguson are. I think she's like 13 years older than him, but she's meant to be his mother. And it annoyed me so much. And also, I felt like there was some weird sexual tension between them that was distracting in a lot of ways. But anyway, it was just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. stunning, stunning. Great actors in the movie, despite some weird frisson between them. And just a really enjoyable experience and a completely beautiful movie. So I hope you like it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to see it. I, I, like you, know nothing about it at all, apart from what you've just told me. So. <laughs> oh, no, um, have I no, spoiled no, it? No, 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 not at all. Cool. I will. I'll let you know and I'll take my earplugs. Great. Uh, what's your recommendation? Mine is a podcast, Heavyweight, which we yes. are both big fans of. It's back. So if you don't know what it is, this is the podcast by Jonathan Goldstein um, from Gimlet Media. And in it, he helps people try to resolve things from the past that they still carry around, hence the title Heavyweight. And it's been gone for ages because they've been putting together this season and every episode requires such a lot of research. And I like, I love, they stay with these stories sometimes for years until they come to fruition. And I think in the world of like very instantaneous podcasting, there's something very special about that with this particular show. I've missed Jonathan. I've missed his producers who you sometimes hear on the show, Kalila and Stevie. And so it just felt a bit like hanging out with old friends again, because I have a parasocial relationship with these people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but recently there was a two-parter. So these two episodes are called Justine and Stephen. And in my view, this story is heavyweight at its best, really. A great, great human story. And you really here get a sense of how long he nurtures people through their kind of experiences or what they're looking for, because you realize when you listen to this particular one, he's corresponding with them for, you know, a couple of years. 
And that also makes me wonder, whenever I hear that in his shows, how many dead ends he must go down, because they must get lots of stories that they start working on, and then they realize it's not going to work out. And I would love to know about that. Um, But anyway, this story is about Justine, whose dad was this incredibly bombastic character, and she tells these great stories about him. He was a kind of wild character who when she was a kid told her these mad stories about his life like things like he was an outlaw who robbed a bank armed only with flowers he said that he won big on jeopardy which is like quite an easy thing to prove wrong if he was lying and he also had some story that he got into i think stanford maybe when an ivy league college to study politics and philosophy but given that he ended up not in great state with an alcohol abuse problem that just seemed very unlikely so it starts with Justine wanting Jonathan to fact check her dad's stories because she wants to finally understand whether there was any truth in it or if the whole thing is just the ramblings of a fantasist but in this process Jonathan turns up some information that nobody sees coming and the whole thing takes a real turn and that's what the second episode Stephen is all about so I'm not going to say anything more But it is really, really great listening. And I'm always struck by how gentle and compassionate Jonathan is without ever Mm. being sappy. You know, he manages to hold people through what is often really difficult information that they get as part of these shows. And of course, they're letting him put them on the radio. I mean, it's, it's a very sensitive relationship, I think. But he manages it just super well. And I think even though the show can be quite sentimental, it treads just the right line for me because he has this really deadpan sense of humor and very self-deprecating sense of humor so that's the thing that always reigns it back in but I wept in this one just FYI have your tissues at the ready (laughs) yeah I didn't weep but I thought it was incredible and um I didn't see it coming at all which is as you say the best kind of radio you know it's one story that turns into a completely different story he's wonderful isn't he he's so I think it's because he jokes with people even in the worst of times but always in the most tasteful way yeah Um, I think it's very skillfully done yeah big time what's your next one well my next recommendation is Georgia O'Keeffe and I'll I'll explain I saw the Georgia O'Keeffe really it's a retrospective exhibition at the Pompidou when I was in Paris. And it was a really incredible experience. But I know that most people cannot go to Paris who listen to the show unless they live there. So it's just a recommendation to engage with the work of Georgia O'Keeffe, who was an artist that I thought I knew, but I just saw in a totally different light in this exhibition. She's so famous for her flowers, but she had so many other works and subjects and she kind of flitted in and out of abstraction in a way that's really interesting even though she didn't really see it in that way and she has these wonderful barns that she painted near Lake George in New York where she lived for much of her life and later in her life she has these amazing river series that I'd never really seen before and I just love them and the colors in person were just so, so, so luminous. I mean, I, I I thought the paintings were backlit at points. So I suppose just engage with Georgia O'Keeffe and don't just look at the flowers. And if you can go to this exhibition, which I think I know you are, uh, go because it, seeing art in person is is excellent. And seeing all of this art together was was really revelatory. 
Yeah, she's one of my favorite artists. Her Skyscraper series is one of my favorite, which people never really talk about. Yes. Yeah, that was another one. Yeah, wonderful. I um, love them. Another thing that's really worth knowing about Georgia O'Keeffe is she had this extremely passionate romance with her partner, whose name I can't actually remember. Stieglitz. Stieglitz, the photographer. Yeah. yeah. And they wrote the most hot and heavy erotic letters to each other. And they are so extraordinarily sexy. And that they're around, you can read them. But the way she describes her orgasms is really out of this world. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I, I'm going to look into it. Yeah, it's really <laughs> worth it. It's they're amazing. I think it was like a, in letters of note or something. There were a few, but they're, they're, they're around. They're out there. Brilliant. I'm just longing to see art as some art. I haven't been for a while, but as you say, I am going to Paris soon and I'm going to go and see it. And I can't wait. What's your last recommendation? Well, this one is a bit of a, I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel a little bit, because as I said, I <laughs> really haven't done much that's uh, not been work or seeing my friends. Um, but I did watch a kind of hilarious slash amazing movie from the 90s recently called Copycat, which I came to by way of Maggie Nelson's book, The Red Parts, where she mentions it as a film that has a female cop and female psychologist who team up to fight crime. And I was like, great. I'm into it. Also, it has Sigour the, these two women are played by Sigourney Weaver and Holly Hunter. So I was like, excellent, definitely. Amazing. It is so wildly 90s. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. But it really reminded me that the pace of cinema was so different then. And I feel like the conceits could be way smaller. Maybe they were lower budget. I don't know. The basic plot of this is that Sigourney Weaver plays a criminal psychologist whose specialty is serial killers. So great setup from the beginning. She gets brutally attacked at one of her lectures and is left with really severe agoraphobia. Turns out she lives in an implausibly huge and luscious apartment in San Francisco. So even though she's agoraphobic, she's got plenty of space to hang out in and a lot of very exciting looking art on the walls, which I just, you know, you know, on an academic salary, that's not possible. <laughs> she also has an entire wall of extremely retro computers, which were, of course, top of the range at the time of filming, but now just basically look like giant gray Lego blocks in front mm -hmm. of her desk. Um, but anyway, there's a new series of murders and it causes panic in the city and a couple of cops played by Holly Hunter. And then the token arm candy is Dermot Mulroney, who you may remember as Julia Roberts's hot, but deeply uncharismatic best friend in my best friend's wedding. Mm. I don't know. Can you picture his face? Oh yeah. I watched that movie so many times. Uh, very yeah. much so. <laughs> He's kind of like a, you know, standard hottie, I guess. And the great thing in this film is that he is the arm candy and it's very female centric, which is why I, I recommend it. And basically stuff then gets crazy. It is intensely dated, but it has two female leads who are genuinely pretty three dimensional, which is a joy to watch. It has shower scenes that are not objectifying. It tries its best to treat images of dead women with respect. I don't know if it quite manages it, but it does try. I think its main crime is basically a a really, really appalling stereotype of the gay best friend, which reminded me just how homophobic visual culture in the 90s was. I mean, deeply homophobic. And this guy is basically a two-dimensional cardboard cutout and is in a loud shirt who says darling a lot. I mean, it's very offensive. <laughs> so warning about that. But it is interesting, I think, to watch films from when we were younger and to see how egregiously they shaped the culture for better or worse. Yeah. Mainly I mean, worse. It gets back to our discussion about how art can change things. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, you know, even if you don't choose copycat, 
my recommendation is maybe to just pick some films from the 90s and go back and see what shaped you and what you want to like very deliberately leave behind and what maybe we could think about bringing back in amen hey thanks <laughs> praise be <laughs> alright that's it we wrapped it up babe Minnesota 26 done and done <laughs> I enjoyed it fight the fight the I was going to say fight the climate don't fight the climate <laughs> protect the climate at all costs and protect David Attenborough yes that's all the time we have for today thanks to Daphne Carnizas for editing Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back in two weeks for a full show with Ruth Ozeki, who dropped in to talk to us about her latest novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness. Until then... I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Friction.